0: Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Learning Scientist Podcast. I am Dr. Cindy Nebel, and I am so excited to be joined today by Rebecca Rowland, who is um, a speech pathologist, Harvard lecturer, mom of two, and author of The Art of Talking with Children. Um, so, Today uh, we have lots to talk about, about talking with children, Um, but before we get into all of that, Rebecca, I'm always really interested in hearing about career trajectories. So you have quite a bit of diverse experience, including everything I just said, plus writing poetry and fiction. So can you just kind
1: of tell me um, how you got to be where you are now? Sure. Yes. And you're right. I do have definitely a diverse trajectory of interest and of, um, of passion. So I actually started out much younger in high school, even writing poetry and fiction and kind of being really interested in language. Um, I got more towards the educational side of things. So interested in kind of how we communicate, um, how to help students with language problems. So that kind of moved me towards speech pathology. Um, and I realized there was just so much we didn't know, actually, about how to help people who have language problems, or even just who don't have language problems, but who would like to enhance their communication. So that really led me towards researching and so on. And when I became a parent, actually, I just became fascinated by listening and observing to, you know, the development of speech and language on a day-to-day basis. So that really kind of how you know, it's how it all came full circle, really. Yeah. So in
0: the book, you, um, you talk a lot about rich talk. I'm using air quotes. Nobody can see that, but I'm doing that. Um, so can you, can you kind of give me a definition? What, what is rich talk? What does that really mean?
1: Yeah. So rich talk is really this framework I developed for how we can have more intentional, more meaningful conversations on a day-to-day basis in a way that's actually fun for everyone involved, but also that builds children's skills and knowledge. Um, So kind of this double promise, where it should be more enjoyable in the moment, but should also be building over time. Um, And I lay out kind of three main principles that Rich Talk has. So I can, um, you know, I can define them or I can leave it there. But um, that's kind of the idea is that overall, um, it's meant to jumpstart these more intentional conversations. Well,
0: yeah. Can you you tell me what the three things are? I'm curious.
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely. So I talk about the ABCs of Rich Talk just for ease of remembering Um, and A is adaptive, meaning that we're really responsive to what a student or what a child is saying to us. We're also attentive to the mood and the circumstance. So maybe now is not the right time for that conversation. Maybe we're gonna shift towards a time where it's working for everyone involved. Um, B is the back and forth. So oftentimes I've noticed in my work and research that we tend to talk at children. So we're often, we come with a point, we come with a message but we're not always taking the time to hear really what they're saying or how they're thinking. Um, If we do that, however, we're really much more able to reach them, to teach them, et cetera, because we understand where they're coming from. So B is really balancing that back and forth, having an equal amount of, you know, talk from the student or the child and talk from the adult. Um, C is child-driven. So this is the idea that, you know, obviously not all conversations will be child-driven. But by focusing on what's on a child's mind, by thinking about what they're worried about or interested in or engaged in, we're much more likely to have conversations that actually stretch them than if we start from our own agendas.
0: So you're saying when my son comes to me and wants to tell me about every dinosaur that he's ever heard of, I should probably be paying attention to that.
1: (laughs) Yes, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, once in a while, I just... Yeah, I'd say not all the time. It's not feasible for all of us to do that all the time, and I'm not suggesting that. But I think sometimes if we can dive in, not necessarily let's hear the whole list, sometimes I actually um, stop and say, well, what about, what's the most interesting one to you? So I do kind of redirect a little so I can get kind of like, what's the heart of this? But I do think that engaging with a child with what is interesting to them about this, even if we don't find it interesting, sometimes I actually (laughs) find that asking a child why they find it interesting we can get a much more rich dialogue happening. Yeah, that's great. Um, So a couple things about this.
0: So this is a framework that you kind of developed, but um, this is all sort of research backed, right? So can you speak to us a little bit about the, the research that supports this framework?
1: Yeah, so there's a ton of research kind of converging, which has been really interesting from psychology, from linguistics, even from neuroscience in terms of the power of back and forth conversations. Um, So there's some really interesting research actually out of MIT showing that it's not actually, they did a study finding that it wasn't actually the number of words an adult was speaking, but they actually found that it was the number of back and forth turns. So actually meaning that a child would say something, an adult would say something back, a child would say something back. It's actually the number of those turns that were linked to children's stronger language skills and even stronger social skills. Um, and actually was linked to activation in the brain in language and social regions. And they were interested in that because it seems as though the language m- might be more obvious, because yes, it's a language activity to have a conversation, but the social side was a bit more unexpected. Um, and they said, actually, they realized it's probably because obviously having a conversation is equally a social activity. So it's not just that we're using words, but we're, you know, we're connecting, we're using body language, et cetera. So it actually builds the social aspect as well as the linguistic aspect.
0: So this is really interesting. Um, as I was kind of reading about this and thinking about this, it made me think about the pandemic and sort of this crisis that a lot of educators have been talking about with social emotional learning in the classroom, and that I, I was just thinking about my own kiddos and the number of times during these past couple of years where, daycare was closed or whatever was happening and mommy has to get work done so here sit in front of a screen and and just the the lack of back and forth that really was happening does that does that ring true for you and and I guess my other question there is is it about quality or quantity of these conversations or both
1: Yeah, so I think, um, first, I would say that this absolutely rings true for me in terms of the pandemic. I think I wrote this book before, I started the book before the pandemic started, but I actually feel like right now it's just a perfect storm of factors where we absolutely need to be reintroducing a lot more of this talk. Um, You see the articles coming out almost every day of, you know, babies and toddlers, speech development is behind, and social emotional skills are lagging, academic skills. Obviously, there's so much, and it's nobody's fault, right? That's the thing, is like to say, Obviously, parents are doing the best they can, teachers are doing the best they can. You know, it's the fact of having a worldwide pandemic that makes these things extremely challenging and makes people need to do, um, you know, what they have to do to get through. Um, So at the same time, I will say that I think it is a bit of both about quantity and quality. I definitely wouldn't be the person who's pushing, you know, maximum quality conversations all of the time, 24 hours a day. It's not possible. But at the same time, there's some people who say, oh, it has nothing to do with the amount of time you spend. It's only about the quality. And I think that that's a little bit of a little bit of cop out because honestly, you can't have a lot of quality conversations with a child if you only spend five minutes a day talking to them. So you do need a bit of time, not necessarily sitting constantly talking, but even just downtime to sit in a relaxed way with a child, to let their interest kind of unfold. It doesn't have to be intentionally talking all the time just time to sit and be present is almost the most important i would say
0: yeah so i mean even again as i'm thinking about with my own kiddos and and trying to balance work life kids house everything um that i i suppose maybe a suggestion here would be at least like take a few breaks throughout the day to just sit with the kiddos, right? To get some quality yeah. conversation. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, actually what I found to be most helpful because I'm in the same situation. So I'm also, yeah. I wrote the book during a pandemic with two kids around, you know, crazy. <laughs> so um, what I actually have found to be most helpful in terms of recommending is to really set blocks and be intentional with kids about what those blocks are about. So if you do need to get work done, which Lots of people do, you know, to say, well, this is the time that I'm going to get work done. You could be, you know, whether it's screen time, whether it's plan your own, play with a sibling, whatever it is, that's what this time is about. And then at whatever time when I'm done, we'll actually come together and be mindfully together. Um, so rather than kind of feeling like we have to multitask and spread the email throughout the day and be always on the phone, if there's ways of putting chunks of time where we can say, well, right now I'm not super available, but then I will be, you know, at some point that really can set that boundary and also set the expectations of, you know, I can't necessarily be on all the time, but when I am on, then I actually will be with you. So I think that that can be helpful. Um, And and create space for these like exactly
0: quality conversations, but also a quantity of them. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Um, So in... Some other podcast episodes, we've um, talked a little bit about neurodiversity, and I, I know that that is a, a conversation that I have really wanted to have with my kiddos. I've got one who's starting kindergarten in the fall, and just a lot of tough conversations I feel like are going to be coming up about just understanding the diverse individuals that he is meeting in his everyday life. And so uh, I'm wondering kind of what advice you have for those tough conversations that comes from, from this framework.
1: Definitely. Yes. And I've definitely done a lot of work in schools and even in hospitals um, diagnosing learning disabilities. Uh, and I teach educational assessment at Harvard. So I definitely think a lot about diverse learning profiles, diversities of, um, you know, attention, of, et cetera. And so I think one thing that I found in all of this work to be really helpful is just to start out by setting a framework that differences in learning and thinking are a positive. So it's easy to just say, and that we all have them. I think that's the second piece is that, you know, there isn't just here's this child with dyslexia and here's all these other children who are quote unquote typical. It really is that we all are on a spectrum of learning at some level. We all have different approaches to our thinking and that actually having those different approaches brings you know diversity of opinion brings um, you know creativity potentially if we can use it in the right way. Um, so for example, you know he solves this problem this way. Well, what about what other ways ha- you know could you solve this problem? That's just one very basic example, but suggests that yes, there are different ways of attacking this, and that we can actually learn from each other's approaches. Um, similarly, you know this person has trouble with decoding words. So it's really hard for your friend to read books at your level. You know, what's really hard for you? And what's easy for you? You know, why do you think that is? So just having these conversations and kind of keeping it open, not to feel as though we have to introduce like really big ideas about tolerance or, you know, not in those words, but really just having an open and celebratory attitude towards, yeah, some things are going to be harder for some people. Some things are harder for you, but we can all learn from each other and support each other. I think could be really helpful. I love that.
0: Um, And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, there's research showing that, you know, individuals with attentional issues who tend to mind wander more actually show higher creativity um, on lots of tasks. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that, that sort of talking about these things in a, in a positive light that, yeah, we're all different, but different doesn't mean bad. Different means good. Actually. It means we can, can approach things differently. I love that. Um, so I have another question for you. Um, and this is kind of embarrassing to admit. So uh, bear with me here, but so as a psychologist, right. I know lots of principles of behavior and and operant conditioning and write all these things about, I, I have taught students about how to be more effective parents in class. And yet when I have my own kids, gosh, it's so much harder. Like it's all this theoretical knowledge and then actually applying it in my own life. You would think my kids would be like the most well-behaved kids and they are definitely not. So I guess um, my question for you is, the degree to which you've been able to transfer the things from, from your book and your research into your everyday life, is it do you struggle with that? And if so, like what, what areas do you struggle with? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, that's part of what led me to write the book is that I felt ironically that I wasn't being very present in my own conversations with my kids, even though I thought, you know, I knew so much about the power of conversations but I sensed that, okay, I was often on autopilot. And you know, it wasn't necessarily the worst conversations, but it wasn't very intentional either. So I definitely have found that, that it's oftentimes easy to say you know, in the box or sort of like in the ivory tower, you know, this is what would work well. But when you're actually at home and you have triggers and you have multiple things happening, um, it's much harder. So one thing I found is just um, learn to be humble. So I found that like actually sort of laugh at myself and to realize like, oh, this is kind of ironic. Um, And then also I think the value of repair. So I've noticed that for me sometimes, yes, I do struggle with, you know, there's especially like lots of things happening at once, like overstimulation, like trying to have four conversations at once. And, you know, and if I don't feel like, oh, that didn't go as well as I'd like, I've really learned to talk about in a more open way, you know, well, that didn't go as as I wanted, or I wasn't, I didn't feel so good when this situation was happening. Um, And I found that has been really helpful just as a model even for my children to realize, like, okay, you can say, "Well, this didn't go as well." Um, another thing I found that actually recently I've noticed is that when things start to kind of go downhill, like in a spiral, kind of <laughs> with my children, or they're like squabbling, you know, just to really point it out, even to them. So they're only five and ten, but I think that to help them recognize and kind of lift up that moment into um, kind of you know into the space of the room as a conversation, like this really just is starting to go downhill or like, let's see like what we can do. Like, let's stop here before we continue along this route. Um, I found that that can be helpful just because we can otherwise just kind of let things go, um, even if you know a lot.
0: Yeah, it uh, reminds me of a, a technique that we've been talking about. Um, I teach at Vanderbilt and with the other faculty we've been, we have these um, hot water moments in in the classroom sometimes that are, that are just like, uh, somebody said something and it was slightly offensive and you can tell everybody knows and what do we right, do right, <laughs> right now. And um, one of the techniques that's suggested is talking about, okay, we're in choppy water right now. Let's take a minute and think about this. So almost exactly what you're saying of like just identifying it and saying it out loud so that we're all on the same page. Um. So a lot of this conversation has been about parenting, which isn't surprising because I'm the one leading the conversation. (laughs) I want to apply all of this to my kiddos. But um, I I also want to make sure that we're talking about the classroom, too, because you work with educators quite a bit as well. Right. Yeah. Um, And in the classroom, I feel like the the stress is different, but equal, or maybe even worse, right, than, than being a working mom, that in the classroom, you're dealing with, okay, we have to get through all of this material in the day. And, and there's all these curriculum requirements and testing requirements and everything else. When is there time to sit down and have these kinds of conversations? How do you talk to educators about doing that?
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that is one big question and one thing I think so many educators are frustrated by because, to be honest, like the way schools are, you know, many schools are structured now, it isn't an easy task. So no one's going to say, oh, this is simple, just sit down with them and have these conversations, etc. So one thing I found helpful is to create structures and strategies um, that you can have these conversations, that peers can have them with each other, they can have them in small groups, Almost to have conversation starters so that the teacher can go around and almost be a mentor or be kind of a facilitator and move from group to group, but not to feel as though, yes, they have to sit with each individual child every day and have a deep conversation because, yeah, when you have 25 students or more, um, that's not feasible for sure. Yeah, Okay. well,
0: that makes good sense. Um, Do you talk about that in the book at all, about um, advice for for teachers, for parents, et cetera?
1: Definitely, yeah. So it definitely goes from one to the other. So I've drawn case studies from my work as a speech pathologist, but even work in the classroom, and then work as a parent. So I really do go um, back and forth, kind of toggling between, because I think there are principles that apply, but sometimes the specific techniques obviously will need to be different. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank
0: you again for joining. Um, Is there any kind of last minute advice, something I didn't
1: ask about that you want to make sure you get to say here at the end? Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing I would like to emphasize is just, and I talk a lot about this in my book, is just the value of the types of questions you're asking. So to really, in terms of conversations, um, you know, I I write this question map where there's like open-ended and closed-ended questions or abstract and concrete questions. But in general, just to consider and be a little bit intentional about, well, let's look at the types of questions I'm asking. Do they always have a right answer, you know, or do they never have a right answer, you know, and how can I actually balance not that there's one right type of question, but that I've often found that finding a balance between types of questions can really lead to really interesting conversations. Yeah, that's great. And of course, anyone
0: listening who has found this interesting, um, will link to um, Rebecca's website in the show notes, and you can find out lots more information about her and about the book if you're interested in that. Um, And I think that's that about covers everything for today. So again, I want to thank you so much, Rebecca, for being here and joining us and sharing with all of us a little bit more about the art of talking with children. So thanks again, Rebecca. And um, hopefully we'll see you all again on the next episode of the Learning Scientist podcast.
1: This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon
0: page at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists.